0: Hey everybody, thanks for joining us today for the very first episode of Saving Face, a new podcast dedicated to breaking the stigma around sharing hard-to-tell stories. I'm Ida, and I'll be your host for the series. For our first season, we're asking eight creatives to dive into some of their most difficult personal experiences, many of which are often rooted in trauma and shame. Throughout each episode, we'll explore the ways these experiences have impacted their work and give our guests the space to reframe these stories as moments of growth, forgiveness, and love. To kick us off today, we'll dive into the concept of losing face. What is face exactly, and what does it mean to lose it? Then, we'll chat with Asian American mental health expert Ivy Kwong about the complicated relationships between shame, survival, community, and the many ways sharing stories can ultimately impact our healing. So let's talk about losing face. Linguistically, face in Chinese has two meanings, an abstract definition and a literal one. The abstract concept of face, which is what we're talking about in this show, is a play on the literal definition of face. It refers to your appearance in the eyes of others, like your social standing or reputation. So to lose face essentially describes the act of publicly bringing shame to yourself or even your family. In Chinese culture, you can lose face in many ways, like openly disagreeing with a family member or even just getting angry in public. But I think one of the most relatable ways that this concept shows up in contemporary Asian or Asian American society is by kind of airing one's dirty laundry, so to speak. Bringing up something that seems private or shameful, like divorce or finance problems. All that would cause you and your family to lose face if you were to do it in public. The concept actually exists across many Eastern cultures, but it's especially prevalent in Chinese culture, where presenting a polished front is often more important than telling the truth. As an Asian American, I can say I felt that pressure a lot growing up. My parents were separated and complicated something that was hard to acknowledge openly among our extended Asian family. My dad's conservative Taiwanese relatives always swept my mom and dad's relationship under the rug, and even my mom's more free-flowing Indonesian siblings didn't ask about the situation if they could avoid it. In many ways, the concept of losing face drastically shaped my childhood. I grew up being taught that my parents' non-traditional dynamic was something I should be ashamed of, that my family's true self was something I couldn't celebrate, a concept I had to spend years unlearning once I realized how much that wasn't the case. To dive into that a little bit further, I'd like to welcome Ivy Kwong, a licensed marriage and family therapist whose specialties are healing codependency in Asian and Asian American mental health. I asked Ivy if she could share her perspective on the concept of losing face.
1: Yeah. So I guess there are a couple different approaches to it. Uh, the first being not wanting to lose face for the family, not wanting to shame the family, not wanting to disappoint your parents, not wanting to have all their friends think badly of you or the community think badly of you or to gossip about you in a negative light. And then there's also the shame that you bring upon yourself, like the shame that your parents might inflict upon you for doing something that uh, they don't agree with or that they think is embarrassing or
0: shameful. We started our conversation by really breaking down the role of shame in healing and exploring how to navigate that when shame is such a big part of your culture and heritage.
1: So when you say I'm ashamed that I did that or I didn't do that, it's like, well, that's like kind of yelling at a baby for not knowing how to sprint a marathon. Right, we expect ourselves to be perfect and have and know know everything at every step of our journey, which is impossible. How we learn is through mistake. How we learn is trial and error. How we learn is is by through different failings. And so shame is, I should not have failed. I should not have messed up. And it's like, well, you all of us are doing the best that we can at any moment with what we know. And once we know better, we can do better or differently. So I think that shame can really be impediment to healing because shame can can prevent you from even trying. Shame can prevent you from reaching out for help. Shame can prevent you from being willing to make a mistake that might lead to your growing, your healing, your expansion, because you're afraid of of messing something up, which you're going to do because you're human. And it can really be lonely and, and scary and filled with depression, anxiety, and everything else that can come along with living in that space.
0: Well, I think what's super interesting is that so much of that operates under the assumption it's an assumption, operates under assumptions. We go through life assuming that people feel this way about us, assuming that people will react this way. But I think I found through my personal experience that when I'm actually sharing and being open, more often than not, people are 100% more receptive than when I'm bottling things up or trying to appear a certain way, even though there's so much pressure societally to do so
1: hmm Absolutely. And it's interesting because like an Asian Asian American culture, right? There's this idea like you don't want to lose face, you don't want to shame your your family, yourself. And in so many ways, there's there's prevention from from like actual deeper connection to mm-hmm. really being seen, to really having that space to be safe, to be all of you. And I think in so many ways, especially for just my parents were immigrants. Right. And so moving here, they had to survive. And when you're in survival mode, you can't really deeply connect with others and yourself because you're just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And so, in so many spaces, I found that people who I work with and their families are still living in survival mode. And so, we can't risk, we can't, we can't put ourselves in danger. We can't risk having them attack us. We can't risk being put on the radar. We can't risk making waves because that would inhibit our ability to survive. And Once you're at a point where you can shift from surviving to thriving, that's when you can maybe start to be more open, more vulnerable, more present, more in your body, more as opposed to, I'm just trying to literally make it to the next moment, the next day. And for so many, it's like, well, if you've been living in survival mode your whole life and you've never had the chance to really do the healing, then you'll keep... Consciously and consciously, intentionally and intentionally living in survival mode, which keeps you in a place of we have to listen to these rules that will allow us to survive that we've learned from generations before us.
0: Contrary to what Ivy's saying, almost my entire life I never shied away from sharing what I was going through. In fact, I think I often even overshared, finding it really hard to keep things inside. I spoke to both friends and acquaintances openly about everything. My anorexia in middle school, my parents' divorce in high school, my sexual assault in college, my chronic illness after graduation. Looking back, it may have been some form of rebellion or catharsis, my own way of finding freedom after all the years of repression I experienced in childhood. And... Don't get me wrong, it wasn't always effective. Sometimes people would use those things against me. They'd bully me, mock me, or even spread nasty rumors. But all that stuff mattered so much less than the community I found by sharing my story. No matter what I was talking about, it always amazed me that so many people would come forward with similar experiences to mine. And in retrospect, I'm so glad I wasn't afraid of losing face and opened that door because all those stories made me feel so much less alone in those really hard times.
1: There can be so much healing in shared story, right? Like storytelling and the passing on of stories. And this is how we learn. This is how we heal. This is how we recognize and realize we're not alone in our struggles and what we are going through. I think that when you're able to share your story that can be incredibly comforting, inspiring and deeply connecting for others who hear it. There's there's a quote that I love that that basically says something to the effect of when you share your story, it helps to free others from their shackles. So you can free others by speaking and sharing what you're experiencing because that takes away the shame because shame is a really lonely place to be like shame. You're really isolating your shame. I can't tell anyone. No one can know like what I'm experiencing, what I'm struggling with and what's actually happening. And when you hear someone else going through something very similar, you're like, oh, wait a second. I'm not alone. And and shame dissolves when there is connection and community and others who are going through the exact same thing. That's why there's so much talk of communal care, communal aid, communal healing, because healing happens in community. Like, yay for self-care, but you can't do this alone. We're not meant to walk this journey of healing alone.
0: Definitely. And I think the aspect of loneliness in this is very interesting to me because it is lonely also sometimes to share your story. Mm -hmm. But I think that initial hurdle, that initial fear, once you first receive the community of knowing oh, actually others have shared the same experience, like I'm not alone in this feeling, then you, it makes it easier to bypass that fear. It becomes a positive feedback loop in a sense, right? Absolutely. Yes. And
1: you have to be the one to start sharing. You have to be the one to take that first step. Uh, there's a Shell Silverstein poem, I think, that basically is like, you know, there are these two people who are walking around with masks on and they're both blue. And they both have blue faces underneath the masks. Mm-hmm. But if you walk around with like, you know, a mask on where everyone's like, Oh, you're not blue. And then when you when you take off the mask, when one person takes off their mask, the other person goes like, Oh, you're blue, and they can take off their mask, and be like, I'm blue too. And so it always takes one person to be like the brave one who's like, All right, I'm just gonna share this is my story, and it's and I'm alone. And then and only then can other people find you, recognize you, and join you. And so it it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of vulnerability. It takes a lot of bravery. And if you are able and willing to share more of your story, you will find others who are able to meet you where you're at.
0: I want to return a little bit as well to what we were talking about. So the survivalist instinct that a lot of immigrant families have um, coming here, escaping whatever hardship they might've been feeling, and then being faced with the immense challenges of coming to a new country, maybe not speaking the language and getting a fresh start. We talk a lot about fight or flight when we encounter kind of these very intense, emotionally strenuous situations, but I think something we don't talk a lot about is a fawn and feign response. Mm-hmm. Could you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, of course. So so the five kind of modes you go into in your survival mode, like you mentioned, there's fight, flight, and freeze, which most people are familiar with. And then there's fawning and feigning, which I actually define as codependency. So fawning is... People pleasing, extreme people pleasing, making mm. sure you take care of others' needs and feelings before your own, prioritizing someone else's comfort before your own, making sure that everyone around you is okay before you can be okay. And this is survival technique because like, okay, if I if someone is mad at me and they are the source of my that's how I survive, even if like a parent and child, okay, my I need to make sure my mom and dad are happy so that they won't reject me, abandon me, kick me out of the family, and and I'll die. So I learn to anticipate what they want. I learn to cater to what they need. I learn to do everything I can to make them proud and happy so that I can stay connected and alive. And feigning is pretending to be smaller than you are, less powerful than you are, less needy than you actually are, less feeling than you actually are. Again, so you don't hurt or offend the person in position of power who you are depending on for survival. Mm
0: -hmm. And so
1: when you live in these spaces where, okay, all the time I'm going to uh, conform, I'm going to make sure that I don't take up too much space. I'm going to make sure I don't rock the boat and cause any waves by sharing what I'm actually feeling or by speaking about what I'm actually needing. I'm going to make sure that I'm going to notice when you're not happy or a little bit upset, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure you're better.
0: Hmm. And yeah. so
1: it, I, it's beautiful to be someone who cares about others, and it's beautiful to be someone who wants everyone to feel good. It becomes more harmful than helpful if you begin to hurt yourself, deny yourself, sacrifice yourself, compromise yourself, your integrity, your values, your truest alignment with your truest self in order to accommodate others. That's when you start experiencing sickness that shows up in your body, it's aches, it's pains. That's when you start really moving farther and farther away from yourself in order to stay connected to others. And so there reaches a point where, who are you? Have you lost yourself? Are you living in a way that is connected at all to who you are? Or is it only a reflection of what everyone else wants you to be?
0: You know, I think that there are so many ties between those two responses and modes in particular um, with what we're talking about with these issues of shame and wanting to hide whatever's going on for the benefit of others. Even though, for instance, you might know deep down it would benefit you to share, to discuss. It might help you heal. It might help you get over it. It might help you find community. But so often we limit that ability in ourselves to do that simply because we're afraid or wanting to cater to what others think. And so it's it's so interesting to me to frame that in the lens of codependency, because I don't think that we see it that way a lot. Mm-mm. Sometimes we just
1: see it as, well, that's how just the way things are. And I always say, like, well, just because they're the way things have always been doesn't mean that the way things always have to be. And so, again, an example of how this is passed on from generation to generation. Like, my father's mother was a third of three wives, a lowest in the totem pole. And she survived by not making him angry because if he did, then he wouldn't show up and and he wouldn't contribute financially. He didn't much anyway. She's still at work as a janitor and, you know, in in a restaurant to make ends meet. And so she passed that on to her son. And then my father worked at General Motors during the time in the 80s when Vincent Chin was murdered for being Asian by by the white folks who murdered him. And so he learned not to speak up at his job. He learned to be quiet because if he did, he faced some very severe repercussions. So he basically was beaten down and learned that he had to keep the job. He had a family of six to support. Right. So he had to survive by shutting up, not complaining, not speaking up about for his needs or what he actually was feeling. And that took a huge toll. And then he tried to pass that on to all of us. Like, hey, you know, life is hard. You can't trust people. You have to just work hard. Don't, you know, draw any negative attention to yourself. And we learned that and we repeat that until someone stops and is like, do I want to keep living this way?
0: Hearing that is crazy because it just sounds exactly like my dad. And I I really do try to stray from these stereotypical tropes of like tiger mom and so forth that I don't feel like serve us as a community in a lot of ways. But I think it's baffling to me, like the similarities um, in that generation of just, yeah, I totally get it, right? Like I totally understand the intensity of their feelings and why they raised their children the way they did. And even though I understand, it doesn't mean I'm necessarily aligned with it because I'm like the complete opposite. But at the same time, I think building that deep rooted understanding of why they are the way they are and holding space for that compassion is extremely important. And I I don't, I don't know if that's something that we always do.
1: I think there are many layers to it. I think that the ways that our parents tried to love us, again, doing the best they could with what they knew and with where they were at and continue to, that can that can cause some damage, that can hurt, that can, that can in some cases mm-hmm. cause trauma, you know, just our parents beat us. So now we're beating you, right? Again, just so on one level, there is the recognition that even though it was the way that they loved us best, the way that they were maybe even better than ways that they were loved still hurt us and that it's not a betrayal of them Mm -hmm. or dishonoring of them to acknowledge that. It's just part of what is. And so I always say, you need to get through the F you before you can get to the forgive you. So bypassing the grief, bypassing the pain, bypassing the very real lived experience you had doesn't help and actually hurts more. If you have this, my parents never did anything wrong and everything's great and I'm totally okay with everything. If that's true, great. If it's not true, that's going to take a toll somewhere in your psyche, somewhere in your soul, in your spirit. And so at one point, yes, there can be a recognition working, allowing yourself to experience the rage, the anger, the grief, the pain, the sorrow, the sadness, not just what you experience, what they experienced and everyone before them experienced. But at one point you may reach a point where it's like, okay, and now that I've grieved, now that I felt the anger, now that I've let all of that move and continue to move whenever it wants to come up, I can reach a point where I can truly feel Perhaps appreciation, perhaps compassion, perhaps gratitude for everything that they went through, for the ways that they were able to show me love that are the best way they know how. And now I can receive it, whereas before I fought against it, was resentful of it, was angry about it. Now I can see. And now I can love them with where they're at, not expecting or wanting them to change, but acknowledging that that's where they're at. And all of this is a journey. And again, everyone's a different stage, and different point. There's no right, wrong. There's no fast forwarding, (laughs) you know, like there's, this is where we're at. And so wherever you are in your journey, know that you're exactly where you need to be and continue to walk the path.
0: When we take into account the many underlying reasons for why we find it hard to share stories, it suddenly makes a lot of sense. The more we don't know that something is traumatic, the more we normalize that behavior. We consider it an experience we must endure to survive, preventing us from ever really embarking on the journey of healing. In many ways, I didn't even see my first real traumatic experience for what it was until 8 years after it happened. When I was 16, my neighbor drugged me. I'd gone over to his house to pregame a New Year's Eve party I really wanted to go to. I knew he liked me and that he wanted to get me drunk, so when he poured four shots, told me it was vodka and that we could head to the party once I took the shots, I downed them all like it was nothing. Turns out, it wasn't vodka, though. It was four shots of a rum so alcoholic that it's actually illegal in the States. That night, I threw up 21 times, and yes, I counted, because nothing like that had ever happened to me before. I threw up so many times, I started vomiting blood. I was already back home at that point, trying to handle the situation alone, and I just broke down, waking up my mom and asking her to help me. Despite how terrible the night was, though, when I woke up the next day, I kind of quietly put the whole experience away, downplaying its importance, and shrugged it off when friends asked me what happened. Soon, it blew over, and I didn't really give much more thought to it but later on in high school and college, I started to have these reactions when I drank. I'd be completely conscious, have like one beer, and then I'd start to lose vision and need to lie down or throw up to break through the darkness. In all honesty, I kind of thought that all this was normal. Like maybe I developed an allergy or had low blood sugar. Normal things, like common reasons as to why something like this would happen. I laughed off my response, made jokes about passing out, and slowly, little by little, scaled back on my drinking, convincing myself that it was okay, that that was something I wanted to do. My understanding of all of that changed last year, though, when I was diagnosed with PTSD. I didn't know, but all those times I passed out were actually flashbacks to the trauma I had endured at 16. And having a diagnosis brought me a sense of relief, weirdly. Like it was oddly reassuring to know that I wasn't born that way. And it was normal to have these reactions to trauma. I just didn't know that what I went through was even trauma. I thought it was just how life was. Until someone told me that I didn't have to keep living that way. I think that aspect of really letting yourself grieve or feel rage or whatever it is you're feeling come to the surface and have that be processed internally, that is the most important step because you can't get anywhere until you've done that. I mean, in my own personal experience, I think that's happened over and over again because I am strong, right? Like I like to believe that and I want to embody that. So, so many experiences from... You know, the I think my very first traumatic experience was that time when I was 16, when um, my neighbor drugged me, essentially. And, you know, I normalized that so hard, (laughs) like, incredibly so, like, to the point where it was like, this is no big deal. Like, I, this happens to everyone, like, I shouldn't even trip about it. And four years went by before I think I really ever acknowledged, like, actually, that wasn't right. Like, I think that might have been trauma. And I think the fact that trauma as a word, you know, carries so much weight in our society makes it really difficult to use it to define our experiences. And Especially for women, especially for women of color, we normalize so much bad shit that happens to us and we just label it all as that's the way things are.
1: There's another quote I love that is, just because you can take and tolerate a lot of suffering does not mean you have to. And again, as women of color, there's so much suffering that is thrust upon us, that is piled upon us, that we are told that we just have to accept and then we learn to bear that burden. We learn to carry that weight, but it takes a toll on us. And just because we does, don't mean we, we have to. And when the when the things happen that deeply wound our spirits, our souls, our psyches, our physical, our emotional, our mental bodies, there can be a fear in acknowledging the fullness of that violation because there's... there's a fear that, ooh, okay. If that was trauma, does that mean I'm broken? Does that mean I wasn't strong enough to do something about it? Does that mean? And then there's so much self blame. And again, here comes the shame. Right. Right. Here comes the shame. And I don't want to. F- I don't want to believe that that's the type of person I am. I'm going to normalize it, rationalize it, justify it, make it okay, minimize it. You know, just so I can continue to survive, thinking that if I felt the fullness of the rage, the grief, that that might kill me, destroy me, or render me incapable of being able to function. And that's one of the biggest fallacies. The way that you free yourself from it, the way that you heal is actually allowing yourself to feel the fullness, to recognize the depth of that violation, and to allow yourself to feel the sacred rage, the grief, the pain from it, to move through it, to process it. One of the ways you can do that, sharing your story. (laughs) When we've come full circle, right? People are like, how do you process feelings? I'm like, you can process them in many different ways. You can process them through physical movement. You can process them through expression through art through through music through song through written words you can process it by speaking exa- about what happened to a a sympathetic empathetic supportive loving safe audience through community like these are the ways that we process feelings and this is how we heal otherwise you hold it in and it grows bigger it doesn't go away
0: right and i think specifically because this podcast is geared towards understanding how creative folks process their traumas it's so interesting because i think earlier in my life so around this time probably from i don't know when i was like 16 to 22 um i created so much art like i made so much work that looking back i'm still very proud of. i'm like that was the best poem i've ever written. i'll never write anything like that again. haha. <laughs> but in reality like that art came from such a raw and hurt place and not knowing that in the moment and kind of like deflecting my ability to be honest with myself and really confront the situation. I directed it into my work and that's okay. I think like that was just where I was in the journey at the time, but it's so interesting to look back and see the ties between where those things aligned and where they diverged. Do you know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I love that you were able to move it in a way that resonated with you at the time, not even knowing you know, that that was what you were doing. And I love that there's a space for creatives to share their stories because so much of what – your life experience informs your art. Your life experience informs what you do. And is it more helpful or harmful? You know, again, we can take our pain, our trauma, and we can we can funnel into ways that are less healthy coping ne- mechanisms. And this is where addictions come into play. This is where workaholism, you know, whether and this is where sex and love addiction, This is where really intense codependency can flare up. I'm gonna I, can't, I don't want to deal with my own stuff, so I'll fix everybody else. This can be where there is gambling addictions or alcohol or drugs. And so one method can be a form of escape, mm-hmm. attempted escape, or numbing. And one can be more deeply connecting, can be healing, can be free. And so again, everyone's doing the best they can at every moment. And at one point, alcohol may help until it stops helping and becomes more harmful than helpful. And can you be really honest with yourself about whether or not the the hundred hour weeks that you're working, are you maybe trying to avoid something, run away something from something, prove something, or is it helping you? And is the art that you're creating? You know, where is that coming from? And you, and actually you don't need to know. I think that so many times we're like, I need to know, I need my brain to understand. Sometimes you don't need to know, especially for art, you can't explain it, articulate it, like define it. It just is. And, and can you let that move and to flow through you and also to reflect on what brought you to this point where you're able to access what you're
0: creating? Definitely. I also think that what is difficult for us to understand within this is that all kinds of things affect us. Like things that we don't even consider, like I mentioned at the time traumatic, or even for years, we don't consider traumatic. We may discover later on when we are facing situations where we've got like a one trigger and a nine reaction, um, something I've been experiencing lately, and I didn't even realize was happening. It's connected to something so much deeper. And I don't know, that aspect of trauma is really interesting to me because there's a whole spectrum of things that can be trauma and the stigma that's associated with the word i think prevents us from understanding that so for instance i've got this really actually traumatic event where um you know i was physically affected in some way by somebody and i had very little control in that situation and it has like a physical reaction every time I have alcohol now, like I have um, flashbacks in certain ways and I can't, I, I know that that's trauma because I can't control that so forth. But then I've got this other experience where um, I have this very intense case of like ambiguous loss, basically, where one of my best friends for many years just suddenly stopped talking to me one day and never spoke to me again. And I had no idea why I asked all the questions, sent all the messages, tried all the mediums, but you know nothing came through and I was just extremely confused and I was like well, did I do something wrong? Like questioned my self-worth a lot. And now I'm finding that whenever people don't respond to me, I still have that reaction in a lot of ways because of this deep-rooted experience. But at the time, you know so many years have passed since that. I think 2 or 3 years have passed since they stopped talking to me. But, you know, all this time, I never thought anything of it. I was like, I don't need to process that. That's not loss. That's not grief. That's nothing. And so this this journey of uncovering the things that have actually affected us can be so deep and so jarring in some ways because it's like what returning back to what you were saying, like I don't want to be the kind of person who was affected by that. I don't want to be someone who was vulnerable enough to suffer from that. So how do we reconcile all those things in that process of uncovering?
1: how dare you be human? How (laughs) dare
0: you have a
1: negative reaction to something that harmed you? You know, I think that there's this pressure to be superhuman, to let nothing impact us. And you really restrict your ability to experience the fullness of your humanity when you do that there's there's the idea that again there's this limited range of experiences or feelings that are acceptable and and worthy of feeling you know in this toxic culture of happiness i have to be happy it's like well happiness is one of many many different experiences we could be having and why are you limiting yourself to such a small range of what you can feel and just again so much of what we experience is when it comes to our emotions they're messengers right they're delivering different Different memories, different ideas, different, uh, yeah, messages to us that we can listen to or we can reject. And so, when it comes to trauma, there's there's big T trauma, like the there's there's a my life was in danger because this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a natural disaster. I was in a car crash. I was there's been sexual trauma. Um, there can be little T trauma, which is like I cried for a lot when I was a baby and my mother never came in and picked me up and soothed me. There can be the, my my friend just disappeared on the face of the planet, this person who I was connected to, who I trusted, who was someone who I thought was chosen family, suddenly just one day is gone. And there can be ancestral trauma and intergenerational trauma, just historical grief. We don't even know why that affected us that, that deeply. And we may, again, may never know consciously, but perhaps there was some sort of abandonment that happened somewhere in your lineage to someone who just lost, someone who they loved, were dependent on, not saying the enrichment, but just there's something more there. And we may not understand it. And we'd be like, ugh, I, I'm, why am I doing We can judge ourselves so harshly. Like, why am I responding so much? That wasn't a big deal. It was totally fine. Or it was a big deal and it was not fine. And it's okay for it to have been a big deal and not fine. And can you heal at the root of that instead of just trying to deal with the leaves and the symptoms?
0: Mm-hmm. I don't think there's really any way around it. Understanding how much things in your past hurt you sucks. Like it really, really sucks. It sucks to know that you're vulnerable and that you can get hurt like everybody else. But those realizations also gave my experiences the weight and acknowledgement they needed to help me understand my emotions. And because of that, I was able to grieve. And ultimately, I was able to start moving on. Lately, in all the chaos and hopelessness of the world, I've really relied on finding community and shared experience to keep me going. i found solace in conversations just like these, ones that make you realize no matter what you're going through, there's someone else going through the exact same thing with you. And these realizations, no matter how hard they are to have, they help me see that by acknowledging pain rather than blowing past it, we can access a whole world of understanding and healing. And you know, I'll be honest, it is a world I'm just starting to figure out myself, but it's one that I'm glad I'm finally stepping into. And I think something else is, that's part of the journey of healing, right? To have that very moment. But I've been wondering this myself lately, how much of that work is is going is is framed probably as healing as recovery and how much of it is just work that we're constantly going to be doing, like for our whole lives. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: So there is a, a story or another a saying that if you see the Buddha on the side of the road, you have to kill him. Meaning if you see someone who is an enlightened being who has learned all the lessons they are here to learn on this planet in this lifetime, kill them because they shouldn't be here anymore. Mm. Because if you are a human, if you are waking up with breath, if you are opening your eyes in the morning, then there is more for you to learn to experience until your last breath. From the moment you start to breathe to the last time you exhale, there's more for you to learn. You're going to learn one lesson. Great. You're going to be presented with a new one. And so the journey of, of healing, of growth, of discovery, of exploration is, is never ending unless you choose to stop it. You're like, I'm done. But once, (laughs) once, once you decide that life hasn't necessarily, it's not really going to agree with that or support that. And so again, you can live life in whatever way feels best for you in every moment and how you've been living life. may be. I just like, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Until one day, maybe you're like, Maybe things are not as fine as I've been saying they are. And then there's more for you there. And wherever you're at, life will always rise to meet and to support you. So can you be open to listening and hearing and allowing that?
0: I think because we are so isolated in these feelings a lot of the time, we don't remember that.
1: Yeah. A lot of times we can think that we control everything. That it is our job to make sure that we are making the right decisions. <laughs> yes, and uh, sometimes life has things planned for you that are not what you have planned. Or, i.e., we are in the middle of a pandemic right now. I think anyone who's made any plans in the last six months were like,
0: oh, never mind. Maybe I'm not as in control as I thought.
1: And what happens in that space?
0: Yeah, actually, in a way, that's a great reminder of the fact that we aren't always in control this pandemic has affected us so much all of us every single person and in reality like so much of the negativity we feel around that might actually just stem from the fact that we can't stand losing control I mean look at all these um people who are like chalking it up to being a hoax for instance and being like oh this is just deployed to control my rights like it it came back to control at the end of the day it's so fascinating I never even framed it that way
1: Absolutely. We are so terrified of not having control because, again, it's a survival thing. If I can control life, if I can predict exactly what's going to happen to me and when, then I will keep myself safe. And so our our brains are wired for survival. Our brains want to keep us alive. But the problem with our brains and our minds is our minds can only get us to places they've already been. Like our mind can only know what it knows. It doesn't know what it doesn't know. Mm. So you can keep getting yourself back to the same place. That's why we keep using the same coping mechanisms. That's why we keep having the same reactions because our, our brains are like, I know what this is. I know what this leads. That's how we keep going back to maybe unhealthy relationship patterns. I know where this is going to lead, but at least I know versus the scary, you know, like venture into the unknown.
0: Yeah. And to tie it back, that is part of the reason why we get so scared to share our stories when we haven't before. And I mean, it could be terrible. Oh yeah. It could be awful. It could be, it could be the worst.
1: You could be actually staying there alone and no one's like me too. You're just like chirp, chirp, chirp. Like, oh great. (laughs) I'm alone. Yikes. (laughs) And that's possible. But, but at the same time, it's like, and then what? Right. Right. And then what? And then you've spoken. And then you have released, and then you have expressed. And then maybe somewhere down the line, like two, three, four months, years later, someone's like, oh my God, I really needed to hear that. That's me too. And there's also like, let people teach you who they are and where they're at, right? Like, let people show you who they are. Let people mm. reveal whether they're someone who's like kind and compassionate or whether they're judgmental and critical like, great. I'm really happy to have this information. Again, when it comes back to the losing face and shame, right? If someone is like, "Oh, can you believe that family and their daughter? Like that says a lot more about them than it does about you. And do I want to associate that closely with them? Do I want to try and suck up to them and get their approval or validation? Or do I want to like distance myself maybe a little bit? Mm-hmm. You get to choose. So I always think it's wonderful when someone reveals something that is like a no. Because I think that it allows you to get the information you need to protect yourself, to honor yourself, to carefully, consciously, intentionally choose who you decide to share your time, energy, attention, and life force with. Because that's the most precious resource.
0: Yeah. And it's like, maybe you're afraid of the reaction, but if the reaction tells you more about where you want to spend that energy, then it's not a bad thing to get. Like, I'd rather know who isn't messing with me, who looks down on me, right away so that I can just be like, okay, like no more time spent there. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Thank you for making it so clear for
1: me. (laughs) It's like you don't want people who want to judge you, criticize you, or or condemn you for being all of who you are. You want to be around people who you can be all of yourself with, be more of yourself with. You want people who are safe spaces, who are supportive and nourishing and kind and loving, not ones who are going to make you jump through hoops for their attention, validation, approval.
0: Yes. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Ivy.
1: You're so welcome. It's an honor to just support the community and to hopefully share more about what it can be, what it is and what it isn't, what's possible.
0: Thank you all again so, so, so much for listening to the very end of our first episode of Saving Face. I'm Ida, and we'll be back with you next week. Saving Face is brought to you by New Fly Magazine. We'd like to give a special thank you and shout out to Matt Hong, our audio engineer, for making the soundscape for each of our episodes. I'd also like to thank Belinda Mann, who's helped co-produce the series with me, as well as Daniel Fung, who has put together our cover art for each episode. And of course, we'd like to thank our wonderful guests for having the courage and openness to share their stories. Thank you so much for listening.